We are in a series on the book of John, and uh, just about, I guess it was last week or the week before, somebody came up to me after and said, Bob, I'm really proud of you. You have not run off on any rabbit trails in such a long time. So put on your bunny ears, suckers. We're doing a rabbit trail. Here we go. Partly because we've been discussing some uh, incredible themes in, in the book of John as we've gone through chapter 1, as we've gone through chapter 2, and now we're finishing up chapter 3. We've hit these themes of faith. We've hit these themes of belief. We've hit these themes of salvation. Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is the Lamb of God who came to save the world, to take the sins of the whole world. And so all of these themes trigger things for me. I don't know about you, but I'm easily triggered. So uh, they trigger things for me. That's just, well, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, that's maybe mocking something I shouldn't mock. Anyways, these themes get me going. They get me thinking, and I get on rabbit trails. And uh, early this week, I, I was kind of looking over some stuff, thinking about things we'd been looking at, and I decided I'm just going to talk about it. Uh, these themes that are in John, theme, themes that we can struggle with in our walk with God. We're going to look at salvation. What is faith? How do works fit in there? And uh, my works, my efforts to live for God, how does that fit in? Some of these things are things we've talked about before, but they bear repeating. But the main thought I want you to, we're going to use as our springboard is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. All right? And, and he puts this great puts together this great passage, Paul does, and then then he fills it out as he keeps going. In verse 10, he talks about things that God wants us to do, that God has planned from before the creation of time, from the beginning. There are things, this is amazing, there are things that God wants to do through you that he has been planning for centuries, for millennia. You've been in his mind and he's been thinking about these things. And the, and the crazy thing is that sometimes these things will be something that you may never even recognize what happened. You may never even know. You may just be the person who gives the right word at the right time. You may be the person, I mean, I, I've said this before, you may be the person that gives some money for something, say, say Arizona, and some Navajos' lives are totally changed because of that. God has planned that. God has planned that. That's why I tell people, and I don't like to always, I don't want to harp on this, you guys know that. Um, Sometimes you feel prompted to give to something. That may be God saying, I've planned this for you. Step out in faith. I know this may be difficult. Do it. Or, or it may be, you know, you talk to Josh and you say, I want to go. I want to see it. I want to go there and see it on the ground. What's going on? I want to see. I want to meet them. I want to love them. I want to serve them. Just a powerful thing. God has planned that. So it is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's not something we can work up out of the goodness of our being. It is a gift of God, not by works. I can't do it. So no one else can boast. So no one can boast. So grace by faith alone, this sounds pretty simple, but it actually, this has led to some really important questions that have been grappled with in the church over the centuries about what is the nature of faith, what is saving faith. And so there's some things we need to understand. First of all, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about what does it mean to be saved? 
Because there's some arguments that go on. They've been going on for a long time, uh, often in theological circles. You may have heard some of them. But one argument is this. Yes, salvation uh, by grace through faith alone, is that's right. But we don't want cheap grace. We don't want people just thinking they can skate in. You know, you have to you know, just not just say, Jesus is my Savior. You have to say, Jesus is my Lord. When I first became a Christian, this caused me tons of trouble. Because I remember I be, started following Christ, and it was just like life. My life was turned upside down, and things were changing. And then I went to this church service, and this guy went up, and he said, Oh, yes, maybe you did ask Jesus to be your Savior. But did you ask him to be your Lord? And then he was like, Because maybe, maybe you don't really know him because you didn't ask him to be your Lord. And I'm sitting in this pew going, oh, no, I blew it. You know, not realizing God reads our heart. But saving faith, they say, must include the intention to follow Jesus as Lord. That's called lordship salvation. It's an idea that the saved have, being saved has to include this, I, this intention to follow Jesus. And some of you may have heard this. Yeah, maybe you've argued this. Maybe you believe it. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying this is one side. Here's the other side. The other side says, oh, no, you can't say that. Because you're adding works to faith when you say a person has to have the intention. You know, it's, it's faith alone. And if I say I will follow, that's a work. And you add that in the equation. We're saved by grace alone. This is a group that says grace plus nothing saves. And so one group accuses the other group of bringing works in. One group accuses the other one of being cheap grace and, and maybe fooling people into thinking they're saved. But I feel like in some ways the way this argument is presented many of the times that I've heard it, both sides are getting it. They're both right, but they're both wrong. Because I think the problem with this is we have to get down to the, what does it mean to be saved? Because essentially both sides are defining the word saved as, if you think about this, they're saying, what are the minimal requirements all right, what are the minimal entrance requirements for me to get into heaven? Because one side says these are the minimal requirements, and one side says these are the minimal requirements, and they're arguing over something that I think would be something that Jesus would go, what in the world are you guys talking about? Because the fight then becomes, how much are you allowed to not intend to follow Jesus and still be let in when you die? And this is the problem. Jesus never says, here's the minimum. Here's the least you can do and still be brought into my kingdom. Here's the least you can do and I'll still grant you eternal life. Jesus never, he never says that. He never intimates that. And that's for a real good reason. Because you think about how would that work in real life? How would it work if, you know, I do, I do a lot of marriages uh, it's just such a joyous time. I love it. I, I love doing it. And sitting down with couples and talking about vows. And some couples make their own vows. And some couples go, no, you know, we'll go with something a little more traditional or standard. And, you know, all this. What if, what if some, some guy popped up and said, in my vows, I want to put in, you know, I intend to, to love you and do the least amount that I need to do to keep this marriage afloat. How's that going to fly? Let's say you had a job interview and you said to the interviewer, what's the least that I have to do to not get fired? Tell me the bottom line. And what would happen? The interviewer would go, you just crossed it. <laughs> right? You know, I'm not hiring you because you're coming in planning not to work on this deal. So that would never work in the real world. And, and, and it's not something that Jesus even talks about and considers. Because if heaven's the kind of place where it's full of people who've done the minimum to get there, I don't know if that's the place you want to be. It's just not the way Jesus would design it. It's just not the way God would have it. 
Because saving faith is never presented as here's, here's the bottom line doctrinal truth that you need to know to make the cut, right? It's never presented that way. Now, people can talk about that, and it's not wrong to talk about that, to talk about what does, what, how do we know, and what does, how does a person get saved? It's, it's fine to talk about that, but that's not the point. What does Jesus say? He says, now through me, through my life, through my death, through my resurrection, the presence of God, the power of God, the favor of God, the love of, a God, of, love, love of God is available. And if you want that, you follow me. Because that's the way you'll receive it. You'll learn it. Trust me about everything. Trust me for everything. Of course, including your eternal destiny. But everything else between then, before then. So saving faith is the posture of total dependence, complete trust that enables me to receive the forgiveness, the acceptance, and life from God. It's depending on him. Why? Because we just looked at the verse and said, I can't do anything. It's depending on him. It's trusting him. Why? Because he's promised it. And so that as I say, just in, in investigating this, maybe, maybe, maybe you're here, maybe you're listening. You go, I don't know if I believe all this. Okay, well, search, look, seek, find out. If you're not sure, find out. I mean, I, there's, I could give you several books that are very helpful in this. Not overly pushy, just very helpful. Then it's complete trust that enables me to receive forgiveness, enables me to receive acceptance and life from God. Faith is the vehicle by which I receive that life. So what does it mean to be saved? We talked about that a little bit. That's not a total investigation of it. But secondly, what is the relationship between works and faith? This is where so many people can struggle in their lives. You know, if, if, if I can't do anything to earn God's favor, then why am I doing anything, right? If I can't do anything to earn God's favor, why am I doing anything? Well, the short answer is you're doing it because you love him and he loves you. If you love someone, serving them, uh, um, um, honoring them is not so hard. It flows from you naturally. It's always great. In counseling, sometimes one of the things I'll ask is, is I'll say, why do you love him? Why do you love her? And then I just hear stories, wonderful stories, stories of love and commitment, stories of joy and acceptance. It's, unbel- it's, it's, it's so exciting. I tell people, I got the greatest job in the world. They pay me to do things that are incredible, and I love it. I love it. I love doing this. I love meeting with people. I love meeting with couples and, 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 and working through things together and, and deepening love and, and showing how God can work in their lives and, and, and in their relationship. So when we say, what's the relationship between works and faith, we can come across a passage that I think is very good in, in looking at this. Uh, Paul says this. He's been writing in. He's he's uh, going looking back to Genesis, and uh, he says, "For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from observing the law." Now, this is what's interesting to me. Paul says that we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Now, if you go to the book of of James, James, looking at the same story, same idea, he says this. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. 
Does it seem to anybody here that it seems like Paul and James are disagreeing a little bit? And actually, I don't think they are. I don't believe that. But it can look that way on the surface. What's issue, what's, what, the issue here is the nature of the kind of faith that matters to God, the kind of faith that actually changes a life. Because there can be some big differences between, on one side, this is what I say I believe, right? On the other side, these are my core beliefs. This is what I really believe, okay? And there can oftentimes be a difference. If you think about it, we've all struggled with that at times. We say we believe certain things. We don't necessarily follow through on those things. And the question becomes, well, how much do you really believe that? The classic example of this, I just love this because it's so... Me. It's so us. All right? Moses with the children of Israel. He tells them he's in Egypt, and he tells them and shows them all that God has said and did and is going to do. And it says, and they believed. And when they heard the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. So it looks pretty good. It's pretty powerful. Aaron puts on a PowerPoint, you know, a little presentation, and they're all like, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yes, Moses, Moses, he's our man, right? If he can't do it, anybody can they're all high school cheerleaders or something like that. You know, and, and it's, 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 it's this idea that, okay, we'll follow. So they start following. A few chapters later, they're leaving Egypt. And Pharaoh decides it's not really a great idea to let his total workforce leave. So he gets his armies together and all his chariots, a very powerful army, and he goes after them. And the Israelites said to Moses, was it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us out in the desert to die? which is a very interesting rhetorical question, right? Were we running out of land? What have you done to us by bringing us out to Egypt? See, now they're, they're like, yeah, we'll follow. Yes, yeah, yay, God. And now they're like, what did you do? What were we thinking? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So here's these people that say, we believe, we believe. And then things get rough. And they, and they violate what they said they believed. And so we have this whole thing. These are the things I say. I can say I believe, but these are my core beliefs over here. These are the things. How can you tell the difference? These are the ones that my actions follow. My actions reveal my beliefs. Your actions reveal your belief. So they say to him, get us out of here. Why'd you take us out of Egypt? What were you thinking? And, and maybe at that first part, they were, they were pretty sincere, but when the crisis hit, when there's trouble, they, they bailed. They totally bailed. Circumstances changed. There are times when we say this is what we believe, and then circumstances change, and we violate our beliefs because our core beliefs come through. And it happens a lot, if we're honest. It happens in a number of ways. Uh, uh, for instance, um, I believe a marriage is based on two people who have committed to, to submit, to serve, and to love each other for their whole lives, right? And I believe something that can flow out of that is that husbands and wives should share the division of labor around a household. I believe that. Now, in reality, how does that work out? Anyone want to guess where that's headed? In reality, I find myself often doing way more than my fair share of work around the house. I... And I robbed my wife of her opportunity to serve me and gain the blessings that come from that. That's what happened. I'm robbing her of blessings by serving her too much. I wish I could change that about me. So we say something and then maybe things 
don't quite work the way we think. Or another example, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we go to church, we open up our Bible, we look in our, in our, our Bible apps, and we say, ah, I believe that. I believe that. And he says, don't be anxious about what you ought to wear, or what you ought to eat, or what you're going to eat, or what you're going to drink. Don't be anxious about money. Don't be anxious about your possessions. Trust your Father in heaven. I believe that. And then what happens? Money gets short. Maybe you hit a bad patch and you start saying, ah, do I believe it? And you get anxious. And what happens? You begin to realize suddenly, it turns out, I believe that I don't have to trust in money when I have enough money. But when I don't have enough money, suddenly money becomes incredibly important to me. And it doesn't have to, I mean, it doesn't have to be that much. You know, I'm not going to starve. I mean, we're in the United States of America. We're better off than 98% of the planet, 95, whatever it is. We're better off than 95% of the people in the world. And we hit a little rough patch. Oh, and that's what happens. I thought I believed I won't be anxious about money. I thought I believed it was more blessed to give than to receive. I thought I believed that. But when it comes time to actually, you know, like I mentioned, sometimes God prompts you. He does the same thing to me. I'm not telling you anything that I haven't experienced myself. Sometimes I sense God prompting me to do something significant. And my first thought is, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of what? My money, my time. And suddenly, what's God's becomes mine. And that's a dangerous place to be. That's a dangerous place to be. Um, thinking about Arizona, years ago when I was taking teens out there, um, it's a significant amount of money to raise. It's not cheap to fly and then rent vans. And, and I mean, it's cheap. The, the lodging is cheap. You sleep out under the stars. But food and everything else that's involved is not cheap. And I, I would always have people come and say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can raise that much money. I'm not sure if I can get that much money up. And I always tell them this. We've never, never left someone behind that really wanted to go. It has never, ever happened Sometimes, and uh, you know, I could give you stories. Sometimes people get in money the day before we leave. We plan on them leaving. If they're determined that they want to go, we plan on them leaving. We ask them to work at it and to contribute and to be a part of it. But sometimes God works at the last second. It was, is God late? No, he's not late. It was the day before. And so we can say, I, I, it's better to give than to receive. I trust you on that, Jesus. But living it out becomes a little more difficult. And so we have to understand this is our problem. This is all of our problems. I say I believe this, but what I do reveals my core beliefs. What I do reveals what's deep down inside is going to happen in my life. And Christ oftentimes pinpoints these areas in our lives at different times, sometimes maybe in a Sunday morning sermon, Sometimes maybe it's you listen to something. Sometimes maybe you're talking to somebody. They say something and they go, oh, man, I need to be. Christ pinpoints these areas in our lives so that we begin to see them. Because there are things that I really believe. And it's very important about faith when we talk about these things. Because the confusion then becomes very profound. Things I really believe are a part of what make up what might, we could call it, my mental map, how I, vi how I visualize and see the world. This mental map is how things, we think things really are. 
and how things really work. I believe if I touch fire, I will get burned. That's just automatic. Not struggling with that one. Not having a crisis of faith about that. I believe that coffee gets me going in the morning. Thank God for coffee. I'm not struggling with that. Not having a problem. You know, I just, you just go on. I believe in gravity. Not struggling with it. Definitely believe it. I believe that's how things work. And there's things like that in our lives. And the way we can tell what our core convictions are is our behavior. We never violate our mental map. And so it turns out these things over here can be things that can be quite fickle oftentimes. My circumstances change. These things change. Even if I think maybe I'm, I'm sincere, I can struggle with that. And it turns out I'm not the best judge of what I really believe. My actions are the best judge of what I really, really believe. Because if you watch my behavior, you will begin to understand what I really believe. Now, when Jesus comes, he's not particularly interested in, in changing this. He's interested in changing this. Core beliefs. He wants to. Ch- That's why he uses radical phrases for that. Saved. New birth. Born again. Those are radical phrases because it's a radical change that has to happen in a person's life. And for a lot of us, we are seeing those things. You know, for, for many, I mean, even for me, studying John has just been, in some ways, life-changing for me. There have just been things that God has gripped me on. There are things for, for many of you, God is working in your life. He's working to change you. Why? Because he's working on these. He's working on the core beliefs. So when James says faith without works is dead, what is he saying? He's not saying in addition to your faith, you have to have have a certain level of behavioral compliance before God will let you in. No, he's just saying if you really believe something, it happens here. So it naturally changes the way you behave. It's natural. And for, for some of you, you may, you may have experienced that at different times in your life, maybe even recently, where you did something and you think, Wow, 10 years ago, I would not have done that. Something's changed, right? 10 years ago, this is how I would have reacted. Five years ago, one year ago, maybe. A month ago, I don't know. This is how I would have reacted. But it's different. I change, And that's because God is changing core beliefs. That's how that works. So when we understand I have this mental map, it's how I see the world. Jesus wants to go there. He wants to change the way you see the world. And then your actions will flow from it. Now, this can be discouraging because we're all well aware of how we're not living up to our calling. We're not living up to what Christ would want us to be. We're all aware of that, acutely aware. And it's difficult to deal and navigate with that. So it leads to the next question. Help. I don't trust God like I should. I don't trust God like I should. What do you do when you want, you want to be here and it affects your core and you're not sure if you have the faith? You're not sure if that's what's happening. Well, let's look at Abraham again, all right? It's because he is held up in the Bible as a, ch- a champion of faith. The Jews look at him as the father, the father of the whole nation of Israel. So he's, he's, their, he's their champion. He's the one they look up to. Uh, he's the beginning. He's the founder. Now, Paul is in a long argument in Romans 4 where he's talking about Abraham and his faith, and it's a thoughtful and it's a very logical argument, and it's important to us. 
Because what is, what is at stake is knowing a trust relationship is available to you even if you feel like your faith is not strong. There is something available to you even if you feel like your faith is not strong. So let's look at this because Abraham is presented as a model of faith. Right? starts in Genesis 12 here. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. All right? He says, I'm calling you. I want you to leave your home and everything familiar. This is a big thing, obviously, right? Obviously, this is a big thing. This is God saying, I want to change your life totally. Kind of what Jesus is saying to us now. Go to this place. And then, you know, as it develops, you're going to have a son. You're going to be a father of a great nation. Your nation is going to bless the whole world. Through your people, they'll become numerous like the sands of the seashore. And you'll bless the whole world. It's an amazing story. So we continue in the same chapter, Genesis 12. Abraham leaves. He, out of obedience, by faith, he leaves. He goes to Egypt. Egypt is a whole different nation, a whole different set of law, a whole different rules. Everything's, everything's different. But he knows one thing. He knows that, that those that are in positions of power, if they see a beautiful woman, they can take her with no recourse. There's no, there's no problem with that. And so he looks at his wife and he says, you're a beautiful woman. And I think they may take you. So let's do this. And he goes, let's not go into Egypt. That would be crazy, right? No, he doesn't say that. He says, Let's tell him you're my sister. And that way, if you do get taken, I won't get killed. Husband of the year material right there, right? This guy stand up, take charge, right? He, he doesn't seem confident that God is going to watch over him. I was watching, uh, Bill Cumby has been doing our, a series on Genesis on, on our, you can get to it on our, on our website and through our YouTube channel. And, in, and just really good stuff. And in Genesis uh, 12, one of the things he mentions is that, that we see in the life of Abraham that oftentimes he's dominated by fear. He doesn't trust God. What's happening? He steps out in faith. He's going, he's going. But he meets a new situation. Circumstances has changed. And the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, goes, whoa, who's that? Abraham, oh, it's my sister. <laughs> and he says, oh, thanks, and I'll take her into my harem. So, so he takes her, and he gives Abraham what you would think is like a dowry, basically. He gives him all these riches, and Abraham doesn't say, oh, no, no. No, Abraham's like, oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Right? He's getting all this money. What happened? Circumstances changed. Fear crept in. He, just, he didn't trust God in the situation, and so he did something horrific. Now, it... We're looking at it through 21st century eyes. This was an incredibly common thing in those days. Still wrong. Still wrong. And Abraham still blew it when it came to trusting and not fearing. But what happens? God is faithful. This is the greatest thing in the world. God steps in. He, he, he comes to the Pharaoh and he says, you know, you do this, dude. I'm going to lay you. I'm going to kill you. So the Pharaoh, he comes to he comes to Abraham, and he says, in the Hebrew, it's almost identical to God talking to Adam and Eve. What have you done? Why did you do this thing? Suddenly, Pharaoh is scolding Abraham on the subject matter of obedience and faith. And so, they leave. He still gets the riches. What a deal, right? He still gets the riches. They leave. God is still faithful. He does it again. 
He does it again in Genesis 20. And then after that, God has promised him a child. After 11 years more, Sarah says to Abram, she goes, we've been waiting a long time. You're 86, you know, I'm 76. Why don't you just go ahead and have a child with my maidservant, and we'll make this thing happen. And of course, Abraham, husband of the year, right? He says, no, no, I love you. I'm going to be faithful to you. You're the apple of my eye. You're the No, he says, oh, okay, right? He just says that. I guess so, if you say so. And it's a train wreck. It creates problems that last till this day because of that. And not only that, 13 years later, God comes to Abram and he says, look, I, I am, you are going to have a son. It's going to be my way. And Abraham says, oh, yeah, God, I believed you the whole time. No, he doesn't. It says he fell down on his face and he laughed to himself. And he says to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? And under his breath, he laughed. Not only that, Sarah laughed, right? Wait, right here. There we go. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh? And say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, why? what's the deal? He's, he's pushing them. He's pushing them. And Abraham said, well, you know, God, <laughs> he's been a long time, right? And to tell you the truth, I chuckled myself. It seems impossible. No, he didn't. He didn't say that. God said, why did Sarah laugh? Abraham's like, oh, no. Like a, like a kid, right? Oh, no. Even though he just finished laughing. So what happens? God says to Sarah, why are you laughing? And Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. And God said, yes, you did. Can you imagine? Here's this woman with God. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Liar. I'm not a liar. You know, this is just ridiculous. And so God and Sarah kind of go at it. Did not, did so, did not, did so. And Abraham's sitting there going, I got nothing to do with this one. I mean, you know, right? He's trying to, because faith, faith and fear, they're both contagious. They're both contagious. And so what? If Abraham from the beginning started standing up and, and, and his faith was working and, and he was doing, man, he could have, she would have learned, they would have learned together. But fear is contagious also. And so he had so little faith and so much fear, he pretends that Sarah's not his wife two times. In, in so little faith, such little faith that he impregnates a servant girl, thinking that he's going to make God's promises work his way. He has so little faith that he laughs under his breath at God's promise. And here's the man that Paul says, he believed without weakening. He did not waver, fully persuaded that God had the power. And it's kind of like, Paul, are you reading the same book we're reading? Because that does not seem like a good description of Abraham. So what's going on? What's Paul thinking? Well, here we go. Get back into the culture. Get back into the time. Get back into the shoes of Abraham the sandals of Abraham, the sandals of Sarah. We have to do that because we're thinking with 21st century eyes. First of all, 21st century minds, I guess I would say. When Abraham said yes to God at the very beginning, think about it. He was starting from absolute scratch, nothing, nothing. There was no Old Testament. How many Ten Commandments were there? Zero. They weren't around. No Ten Commandments, no Moses, no Mount Sinai, no law, no temple, no priest, no David, no songs, no sacrifices, no stories about Yahweh. He just comes in out of the blue and says, I want to do something incredible through you. 
And so he's got nothing to work with. He's coming from a brutal, superstitious culture. And he tends to react that way because that's what he's coming from. He was a pagan in a holy pagan, totally pagan world. This is, as far as we know, his first inkling that there is a living, good, all-powerful, personal God. So when God says to him, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you, this is an incredible step of faith. This is an incredible step of faith. And so Abraham went, it says, as God told him. See, Abraham is deliberately not presented in the Old Testament as a brilliant spiritual genius who kind of evolved this concept of monotheism. He's just a dude. He's just a human being. He's full of ignorance. He's full of confusion. He's full of superstition. He's full of cowardice. He's full of passivity. He's just like us in so many ways. But he decides to follow God. And through all of his missteps and all of his, his, his wrong ideas, he keeps trying to follow God. Because he's not in denial about one thing. That's just for sure. There's no way he can have a son. It has to be all God. None of him. He's aware of that. So that Paul says in Romans 4, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He's an old man with an old wife, an old body. There's no, there's, there's no pharmaceutical companies that can help with this, right? There's no TV ads where, you know, you're 99, your wife's 89, we can help you. You can have kids, 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 kids. You know, nothing like that. There's nothing going on. He's totally dependent on God if this is going to come true. See, the story doesn't depend on Abraham's certainty. Abraham doesn't say, Sarah, we just have to believe God. We just have to have more faith. We just have to claim this promise. No, he doesn't. He's not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is God, the God who follows through on his promises even when we screw everything up. The God who loves even when we act in incredibly unloving ways. That's the hero of the story. That's the point of the story. There may have been people in his day with more faith than Abraham, but in the wrong thing. It's better to put a little faith in a big God than big faith in a little God. Abraham's the model of faith because what little faith he had was in God. And that's really good news. That's really good news for us. Because none of us are the models of faith. I haven't met any lately, I'll just say that. And this is such good news because Jesus is saying, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed. Smallest seed. That's the kind of faith I'm looking for. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. Tim Keller talks about this a lot. He has some really good ideas as he explained this. But one of the things he uses as an illustration, he thinks about the Israelites as they cross the Red Sea, you know, when the sea rose and they went across. Some of them went across like this. Yeah, boy. Hey, Pharaoh, eh, what do you think? You know, like that. They're all like, oh, this is great. Some of them went across this way. Oh, my 
Gosh, oh, this is going to, I'm going to die. We're all going to drown. Right? But they all got across. The ones who went across triumphantly and the ones who went across in total fear, they all got across. Because it's not size of their faith holding the water back. It's their God who's doing it. And so, Tim Keller says, it is the quality, it is not the quality of your faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith that saves you. That's a powerful thought. That's a powerful thought. That's why Paul, when he talks about, he's talking about Abraham in Romans 4, he, he inserts this in. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the, midst, in, in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and who calls things that are not as though they were. What is he saying? Because he looked to God, the God who could do the impossible, the God who could say, I can change people. You think about that. The most powerful, the most powerful uh, force on earth, you know, if we wanted to talk about something like would be like maybe nuclear power, like a nuclear bomb. And what can it do? It can't make you a better person because if it could, we'd all be much better people with all the nuclear bombs that are around us. It can't change your heart. All it can do is kill you. And that's a terrible thing. But God says, oh, I can go way past that. I can change your heart. That's why Jesus said, don't fear the one who can take your life. Don't fear that. Fear the one who has power over your soul. That's the one you need to be thinking about. And so we have here this idea that it's the object of our faith that's so key. And Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, there's this God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. He makes these things happen. One other author said, the character of Abraham's faith is determined by the character of the God in whom he believed. His hope was not in how strong his faith was. His hope was just in God. The God who called things into being that are not. The God who called the dead to life. See, Abraham's old body, Sarah's old body, they look forward and life comes. That looks ahead to Jesus, who out of death will bring life. God is already in Genesis 12, foreshadowing what his son will do on the cross. And he does it over and over and over and over in the Old Testament in so many different ways. And we run into the problem that we all run into when we talk about these things. I want to glorify God with my life, but oftentimes I fail. And I struggle with that. We all struggle with that. And the temptation is to beat ourselves up, right? That's what I do. I mess up. I do something wrong. And I'm just like, God, I don't even deserve to talk to you. I don't even think you want to listen to me. I don't even know I want to talk to you. I'm so bad. And then what do we do? We beat ourselves up. That's part of beating yourself up, saying, I don't think you want to talk to me. I don't even want to talk to you. That's part of beating myself up. What, what are we doing when we, really, when we beat ourselves up? What are we doing? We're trying to earn God's favor. We're trying to say, I want to show you just how sad, how sorry I am for this by punishing myself. And God's going, Bob, you got it all wrong. The punishment's already been taken. You don't have to punish 
yourself. Because if you think about it, when I sin, when you sin, what can we do in that situation that glorifies God, that actually brings God glory in the midst of me having committed a sin? Well, he tells us, this is what I want you to do. I want you to repent. I want you to confess. I want you to, because if we confess, First John 1, 9, then he is faithful. He is to, to bring this right, to cleanse us from sin. So God says, this is my will for you when you screw up. Repent, confess, and move on. That brings him glory because we learn in Romans, Paul talks about this, that when God's grace flows, it glorifies him. And so the one thing that you should do when you screw up is be quick to repent, to confess, and to move away, to move on, because that glorifies him. If you wallow in your sin, if you punish yourself, if you blame yourself, if you tell yourself what a terrible person you are, all you're doing is saying, God, I can clean myself up, and then I'll come talk to you. I need to clean myself up a little bit, which is just slapping God in the face. It's just spitting on his grace because he says, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, what's the obvious thing that comes out of that? Well, then, bada-bing, the door's open, right? Because if I sin and then I confess, his grace, and Paul answers that. He talks about that in Romans 6. He says, what, shall we sin even more so that grace will abound? And then he says in the strongest words, may it never be. God forbid. He says, why? Because here's what happens. And many you know this, is that when you realize what Jesus Christ has done for you, when you realize how much he loves you, when you realize how incredible this salvation is, you don't want to misuse his grace. You don't want to take advantage. That's why sometimes I'll say to people, if you've gotten to a point in your life where you're looking at something you're going to do, you're thinking about possibly committing a sin and going, well, you know, he'll forgive me. It'll be okay. You know, I can just confess it and move on. That's when you're on dangerous ground. Because Paul says that's not how a Christian operates. A Christian just, just says, no, I don't want to do that. Even when they screw up, they go, God, I didn't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And that's the coolest thing. Because you know why? That's counterintuitive. The, the punishment has been removed. It's totally counterintuitive. Now, it doesn't mean the consequences have been removed. There are still consequences when we screw up. Abraham screwed up big time. Had sex with his maidservant. Had a son named Ishmael. Then God provided Isaac, and Ishmael and Isaac fought. And so they had to be separated. And Isaac founded the nation of Israel and the Jewish race. And Ishmael is the first Arab. And that's where the, the family line of Arabs, they both trace it back to Abraham, just through the two of the different sons. And they still are at each other's throats today. There are consequences. There are consequences. So when we think about this, this God who says, when you've sinned, just repent, just confess and move on. It's been, the punishment has been dealt with. The relationship is fine. We're, I love you. It doesn't change. I love you. What does that do? That gives us freedom. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. The shame that Jesus died for on the cross. And he says, that's how I want you to live. And when you live that way, it begins to change your core beliefs. 
and the actions will flow. You will treat some people different. You will say things different. You will look at different things. You will listen maybe sometimes different things. You will do different things with your time, with your money, with your possessions. It will change you. It will change you. There's never been anyone like Jesus. His teachings about how things really are, his teachings about how life really is, his death on the cross, his sacrifice, his love, his resurrection, it's something you, you go all in on. You bet the farm on it. If you find anything else that's better to make the object of your faith and the purpose of your life, you go for it. There isn't. Not that I've seen. It's worth betting every moment, every gift, every possession, and placing them at the feet of Jesus and following him. And he calls us to that because we can be the people who can change the world. We can enact laws, but it doesn't change people's hearts. We can have a bigger army. It's not going to change the hearts of the rest of the world. Laws aren't wrong. Armies aren't wrong. But if we want to change people's hearts, it comes through Christians deciding to live out their core beliefs in a way that honors God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, that it is true. Lord, in so many of these things, we all can struggle in different ways. We're all at different places in our walk with you, our life with you. And Lord, we thank you that for each one of us, you are intimately concerned, you care, you walk with us every step of the way. Your Son in our lives, your Holy Spirit in our hearts gives us the ability to live in a way that honors you. Lord, we know that starts with us deciding to follow, becoming a Christian. But Lord, it becomes a process for the rest of our lives, and we look forward to that day, God, when you will call us home and we will be made whole and we will live out eternity in joy with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for coming. Thanks for being a part of this, being a part of this worship service as we honor God. I, uh, I get excited sometimes with this. You know, I think about everybody that's at home. I think about everybody that's here and the incredible possibility of what could happen as we all go out into different neighborhoods. We go to different places to shop, different places to work, to school, wherever we go, and we affect the lives of the people around us. We show them the difference that Jesus makes in a person's life. What a powerful, powerful thing that can be. Thank you for coming and being a part of that. God bless you, and you are dismissed.